Hey there, welcome back to The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about journalism and the media. I'm Dave Uberti. I'm a staff writer for the Columbia Journalism Review. This week on the pod, we will talk about an incredibly ambitious research project from the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at the Columbia Journalism School, the Platform Press, how Silicon Valley re-engineered journalism. It dives very deep into how sort of the emergence of tech platforms has reoriented the primary functions of media companies and has really left them hanging out to dry. Then I will have an interview with CNN race and inequality correspondent Tanzina Vega. We will talk a little bit about her job, how it's changed in the age of Trump, and how newsrooms can stop being so white. Joining me on the pod today, CGR's Delacorte fellow, Pete Vernon. Pete, welcome back to the pod. I understand you were in Florida last weekend. I was in Florida. It was pretty great down there, but nice to be back in New York with you, Dave. Back to the podcasting grind. And also on the pod is Nasca Renner. She's a Tau editor for CGR, and she edited this aforementioned magnum opus. Nasca, thanks so much for coming up for air. I'm glad you could be on the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. I'm a much more relaxed person. Good. We wanted first to open with an incredibly ambitious report by the Tau Center, co-authored by Emily Bell, one of our favorites on the pod, and Taylor Owen. And it really dives deep into the Tau Center's wheelhouse. For those who don't know, the Tau Center basically researches the intersection of technology and journalism. And this is sort of, you know, in my, in my view at least, Emily Bell's magnum opus sort of diving into one of her favorite topics, which is Facebook and to a lesser, lesser extent, some of the other big tech companies, how they are having a huge and outsized impact on journalism, the ramifications of which we are only beginning to grapple with. So one of their key findings, which I'd like to sort of jump off with here, is that Emily and Taylor argue that we're sort of approaching a convergence point with tech and media, where you have tech companies such as Facebook gradually assuming a lot of the roles formerly held by publishers, actually publishing content, actually sending content from point A to point B, whereas media has now become more tasked with distributing content on those platforms. So this convergence, we all know, is sort of approaching, but I don't think we've fully grappled with what that actually means for media companies that might one day, while they consider themselves publishers, might not in fact be publishers in the primary sense. Yeah. One of the biggest questions that comes out of the report is what will journalism look like in five years? Even since 2008, well, in the in the 90s and 2000s, you had publishers having this huge problem of how to move from the print newspaper online. And Emily makes the argument that this is actually happening again, where we've had the move from print to digital, and now we have the move from digital to social. And how will that actually change the function of journalism? When we moved online, there was a huge change in the, the way that editorial was oriented, and it's still happening. You know, there's shorter pieces, the news cycle shortens, more places are covering the same things, and so there's more competition for a single event for breaking news, for instance. You no longer have, like, the local station as, like, the core reporting on any kind of breaking event. And now a similar thing is happening where the distribution of journalism is being entirely taken out of newspapers' hands. Actually, I shouldn't make it that much of a blanket statement. Currently, publishers are dividing into two groups. They're polarizing into publishers such as, for instance, the Wall Street Journal, who have been subscription-based online from day one. They're feeling pretty happy with themselves right now because it's going well. You know, they guard their content. They want everybody to pay. On the other end of the spectrum, you have places like BuzzFeed, where there's no subscription model. 
places like them are relying on ad revenue and brand and pushing stuff out. So whether or not you want an audience that is yours or if you're willing to give your audience to the social platforms is a decision that publishers are making. And the field, I think, is becoming much more polarized than it was a couple of years ago. One of the interesting parts of the report is it actually dives into how this transition that you're talking about affects journalism on a more micro level, how particular newsrooms are actually reorienting their staffs or the type of content that they produce to go on these platforms. What are some some of the common threads through that? And were there, if any, sort of higher low points with that experiment? There's a couple ways that, that platforms are actually affecting the editorial standards of newsrooms. One is that they are actually, you know, whenever Facebook releases a new tool, newsrooms feel like they have to jump on it immediately and in order to get into that market. So when, for instance, Instagram released their Snapchat stories clone, Instagram Mm -hmm. stories, you saw actually more publishers are using Instagram stories more often than they're using Snapchat stories. And if you think about what that means in an actual newsroom team, that means at least one person who then becomes dedicated to Instagram stories. That might just be for a special event, like it jumped up for the Rio Olympics, it jumped up during election week. That might not be their consistent job, but it does mean so much staff time that they're really not being paid for. You saw this with Facebook Live, how Facebook had a deal with several publishers to give them literally millions of dollars to go all in on Facebook Live. And they did it. And this is all, you know, Facebook has their own plan to promote video on their feeds and to monetize that from mid-roll ads. Am I getting too... uh, No, no, I'm just... So in that (laughs) sense, what you're describing, whether it's uh, Instagram stories or Facebook Live, in that sense, I know these tech companies don't want to call themselves publishers, but they're pushing editorial decisions, right? Or at least editorial assignments. Yeah, they are. And I think, you know, previously there was more of a wall between editorial and marketing. And in this case, a platform paying a publisher to do a certain type of content, that sounds more like a marketing relationship than it does an editorial relationship. I think the line between editorial and marketing, social media is really confusing that. And we see this happening like within newsrooms too. I'm sure you guys have all worked places where this is the case that the social media editor occupies this really funny space between being a member of the newsroom, yeah. being an editor, and really and not being an editor. And <laughs> you know, like now we have it so that social media editors end up rewriting headlines for pieces to go on right. Facebook, you know, rewriting tweets and shout uh, out to our headline maven Justin <laughs> Ray. Right. Shout out to Justin Ray. And I, I think, you know, in the large legacy newsrooms that I've reported on as well, there's also a lot of animosity toward social media editors for that, for that very reason, because they mold the journalism in a way that travels a little bit better on these social platforms and also in a way that makes, you know, old guard journalists a little bit uncomfortable in some senses. And I think the solution that, you know, some of the older guard people have given is to push them more toward marketing. But actually, the solution is totally the opposite. They have to be brought more into editorial in order to to preserve the editorial brand or the editorial, you know, respectability. They shouldn't be necessarily just following clicks. So you're saying that wall has to come down. Like we can't have the old fashioned wall between editorial and marketing. There has to be a little bit more permeability between it. No, sorry. I think that the wall needs to be reestablished. I think that social media editors in particular are occupying mm. this space that is It needs to be brought to one side of the, the wall. Line. Exactly. Right. 
and and old guard people want to push social media editor more toward the marketing side of the wall and like newer media people really are trying to bring them into the into the editorial right. flock this this sounds like a big beautiful magnificent project this wall <laughs> yeah um i think that <laughs> it's we the should the best wall we've ever seen i think <laughs> i think we should probably dedicate a large amount of our country's resources to uh, rebuilding the wall between editorial and market. Right. No, it, it, I mean, it is funny that, that, you know, the point you bring up with Facebook is a good example of how it pushes editorial decisions. And I, I just remember there was the reporting that they came out with this deal where they were going to give publishers, whatever, a couple million dollars to produce an expected number of Facebook Live videos. And suddenly mm-hmm. you had this, like, torrent of Facebook Live videos. And I just remember thinking to myself at the time, Basically, I've never seen a good or worthwhile Facebook Live video. Well, Liz Spade, former editor of CJR, now public editor of The Times, Friend wrote the about pub. this. She wrote about this over the summer where she was like, New York Times went all in on Facebook Live way too early and they're all underproduced and underthought out and there's all kinds of technical malfunctions and why are we doing this? I, f- I, like, I feel for the publisher, though, in that case because you don't want to get too far behind the pack, right? right? Like if there is some new tool that you're being told by all the smartest people in tech uh, is going to be the next big thing, you don't want to miss the boat. Right. And yeah, so it's got to be, totally yeah, it's tough to not jump on that, even if they're saying, well, it's not, we're, we're not, haven't worked out all the kinks yet, but right. you, we want you in on the ground floor. And uh, from the perspective of the platforms, to be slightly fair to them, they're in a similar position where they're trying to keep up with their own industry competition and they're genuinely trying to provide things to journalists that will work well for what they do. It's just that the turnover in terms of tools is way too fast right. and it's too demanding on newsrooms. But just to go backward a little bit, so the other way that platforms are editorially affecting newsrooms besides uh, defining the allocation of resources is that actually because social media ends up widening the audience of people that you can reach. For instance, the Wall Street Journal is on Snapchat Discover. They wouldn't necessarily be reaching such a young crowd if they weren't on Snapchat Discover. So how then do you morph your content in order to appeal to this very, very different audience? And we've heard from numerous publishers that these suggestions are being made to them by the platforms. They're hearing from the platforms who s- suggested, you know, what kind of genre of of content will do well on their platform. There's the instance from the beginning of the paper about, you know, BuzzFeed and Facebook Live showing <laughs> showing a room full of publishers the uh, famous exploding watermelon Facebook Live video and saying this is the type of content that works well on Facebook Live. Uh, it's a, you know, for anybody who hasn't seen it, it's a 40 minute video of two BuzzFeed employees putting rubber bands around a watermelon until it explodes. You know, that's not going to be appropriate for most newsrooms brands, but that's literally what is being suggested to newsrooms. Right. I've I've been fascinated watching sort of the build out of Snapchat Discover channels at at various media organizations because you do sort of see everyone struggling with the same questions. Like the Wall Street Journal for a long time had a pretty low energy Snapchat Discover channel. They, They basically were putting Wall Street Journal content into Snapchat. And that just doesn't work the same way. You need to have specialized people who know exactly what it is that gets the much younger audience that uses Snapchat to be interested in something. That's why you have, in a lot of cases on on Snapchat, a lot of these outlets sort of gravitating toward Kylie Jenner Instagram pics, sort of aggregations like that, as opposed to hard news, which is much more difficult to produce in a way that's compelling in this format. 
And maybe that just means that certain publishers shouldn't be on Snapchat or that they should do what they want on Snapchat. But if you're trying to hold on to your coveted Discover channel, then you're not going to go off it. Right. Because you're getting paid a ton of money to do that. Right. I have a kind of like basic question that might be a little too broad. But in Emily and Taylor's piece, they write that news organizations face a critical dilemma. And I'm reading from this now. Should they continue the costly business of maintaining their own publishing infrastructure with smaller audiences but complete control over revenue, brand, and audience data? Like that would be like the journal, right? Everything behind. Okay. Mm -hmm. Or everything behind a paywall. Right. And they're in control. They know who's there. They know where their money's coming from. They know. Yeah. And even when they post on Facebook and Twitter, it's linking back to to a paywalled site. And they're, or, you know, they might unpaywall it, but they're getting the audience data. And then the other option that Emily and Taylor have is, or should they cede control over user data and advertising in exchange for the significant audience growth offered by Facebook or other Mm -hmm. platforms? Yeah. Like, does in any of the conversations that were going on out in San Francisco, was there any sort of consensus about which avenue works for what type of publisher? That's a really big question. Were there any answers? No. There's a huge diversity of business models among publishers. And I think it sort of defines what kind of publisher you want to be. So I don't even think that there should be a consensus necessarily or there should be one sustainable route to being a news organization. You know, for instance, the journal has a very cultivated audience, whereas places like CNN and BuzzFeed, you know, CNN came from being a TV channel and, and that type of news organization. So they're all about reach and they're just trying to reach the most people. And so it just depends what your priorities are as a news organization in terms of whether or not you're trying to hit a certain select group of dedicated readers or as wide a range of people as possible. And that's a choice that every news organization should be able to make on their own. It's just that it's getting less easy to survive in either segment. Right. It's funny that you mentioned CNN. I, I did a, a story on them last year where basically they said to me that they want to be ubiquitous, u- ubiquitous on these platforms. They want to be the worldwide leader, as they were on TV, on every single one of these platforms. They need to be in all the places. Yeah. And you have a really cool chart in your piece that, that CNN gave you that basically shows the different rungs of where they distribute their content. I just want to read through a couple of them. The first, the first rung, obviously very familiar, CNN desktop, mobile apps, the mobile web. Then we're getting into YouTube, Apple TV, Roku. Then we're getting into a lot of things I've never heard of. Uh, Line, Kick, Twitter Moments, obviously, Instagram, Snapchat, Discover, Google VR Daydream, Google AMP, Samsung Watch, Samsung VR. We're like getting way out into the uh, far reaches of the galaxy here. Yeah. And you're supposed to be the one young one here. Right, I know. <laughs> I mean, one thing, I, young man. <laughs> uh, one thing I learned from this report was also, I think, Maybe Facebook and publishers think that readers are more aware of these things than they actually are. There's something called Facebook instant articles. Have you guys heard of this or heard of this from other people besides me? Yeah, 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 definitely. Well, I've run into a lot of people who are like, what is that? Um, It's basically Facebook's fast loading uh, where they have everything native. So basically, if if you're a publisher, you end up posting your content directly on Facebook. So if somebody clicks that link, they stay within the Facebook platform. Facebook captures all that data. They have a revenue sharing service. And there's this idea that Facebook markets that readers like to read instant articles more than they like to read other articles because they're so much faster loading, because they're cleaner, they they get more clicks. There's no kind of transparency in terms of the data that they <laughs> that they have. 
Um, and they've been known to screw up data in the past as well. Yeah. I mean, this is all speculation on my part, but they have something that's like Facebook instant articles receive 20% more clicks than other articles, but they don't prioritize it in the algorithm, which is like, but nobody knows what a Facebook instant article is. So I don't know. It's a little bit questionable to me whether or not they're really that successful. Right. And, and, and Facebook does make the argument that, hey, all the people are coming onto the platform, so it's good for you to put your content here. You could get to, to a far larger audience and we'll strike some sort of revenue sharing agreement where you can make a buck, uh, whereas you would have used to have those people come to your website and you could make advertising money off of them there. But, you know, that does worry me a little bit because... I mean, it's the same sort of question you have with the internet broadly, whereas that scale for scale's sake is not a viable business model. And Facebook essentially sells you scale in these deals. So it definitely incentivizes larger publishers to go on because the New York Times can reach tens, if not hundreds of thousands, or if not millions of people with their instant articles. But the Detroit Free Press, the, you know, smaller newspapers, local newspapers, you know, small weeklies, they definitely can't make the same bargain like that. I had a conversation with Joanne Littman, who is the chief content officer at Gannett recently, and she was telling me that basically they are all in with instant articles uh, for USA Today, which is their flagship brand, because the numbers make sense for them. They can get a big return uh, just based on the scale that they have with that. But they have a complete opposite strategy with their local newspapers, which really, really cannot get the same return for putting their content on the platform. Actually, fun fact, the New York Times has now moved completely off of Instagram. Really? I knew that. I knew some tech news. Yeah. (laughs) It's a big day. Yeah. I think they just said the equation wasn't working for them anymore. That's interesting. So what is the upshot of this from the Tao report? Basically, the gist is that tech companies are assuming some of the mechanics of publishers in a lot of senses. And publishers are no longer becoming primarily publishers. So what does that mean in a ethical sense? Are, are publisher, of- are the tech companies, you said they're assuming the mechanics, are they at all, from the people that you talk to, are they at all accepting the responsibility of being publishers, not just the mechanics of it, but like the ethical responsibility that comes with being a publisher? Oh, not at all. I mean, another huge problem is that Facebook determines what gets seen and what doesn't and doesn't have any ethical responsibility. There's actually a lot. It's like the Section 230 thing. I can't remember the exact numbers. Section 230. Section 230. You know it? No. (laughs) That's when I have to go to the dentist. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) You can cut I, I might be getting the name <laughs> wrong. Uh, We're not cutting it. <laughs> <laughs> I might be getting the name wrong, but yeah. So basically what it means is that if you're a platform who is distributing, that is distributing content, you actually are not liable for the things that are published. So for instance, right. Facebook cannot be sued for things that are posted by people on Facebook. Right. And this has given them a large amount of legal protection as well. As far as the upshot goes, you know, we started out by thinking about what the future of journalism is. And I I really have to, like, be my most optimistic self. It's like the glass is at, like, one-eighth full, and I'm like... This is a happy podcast. It's 75% full. No, I think it'll be interesting. There, There is kind of a good scenario in this, which won't happen if the tech companies don't assume some kind of responsibility either for the money that goes to journalism organizations or for the the editorial role they are clearly taking. But if you think about it as publishers losing the publishing function, so news organizations not being responsible for distribution anymore, the problem now is that they are responsible for distribution, but they're not really being paid for it. So if you lose that liability and you 
get more money, then there's a scenario in which news organizations can focus on reporting. Were there any outside-the-box suggestions for how this could get solved? Is there a suggestion that Facebook, Google come together to form a endowment for journalism a la what the British government did with the BBC? Well, I know that this is a leading question, Pete. Yeah, it was in the report. <laughs> I read that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Emily has argued in CJR before that what could really fix journalism is if Mark Zuckerberg gave us a, a bunch of money. And, you know, the BBC model has been very successful. The U.S. is resistant to it for all kinds of reasons, and I don't think that they will be launching that under the Trump administration. But... <laughs> That's definitely one option. What did the publishers that were there, the traditional publishers, ask of the tech companies? Clara Jeffrey of Mother Jones, the editor-in-chief of Mother Jones, wanted platforms to be kinder to mid-range publishers. So, you know, opening up those tools to lower level publishers. I think some of the people that were spoken to for this report also were somewhat optimistic about the Facebook journalism project, which I haven't seen any returns from that yet. But it's an audio format, but your face does not look optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't know. So we had a panel in San Francisco on Wednesday, and there was somebody from Facebook there, the Justin Osofsky, the vice president of global operations and media partnerships. And he, I mean, he sort of reinforced the company line on uh, wanting to develop tools for journalism and the Facebook journalism project, which... We don't know that much about, but part of it is about promoting media literacy and part of it is about promoting local journalism when you're, you know, when you're in a place on Facebook that places newspaper will be slightly favored, which is all good stuff. It it sort of just depends on how much how much Facebook uses the journalism project as a way to listen to publishers rather than a way to try to Impose the word that's wheel. the word that's coming to mind is force feed but i think that's a little too harsh right <laughs> yeah imp- impose or you know to give even giving them tools like even throwing tools at them is not going to be helpful unless it's organically developed with publishers all right well zuck if you're out there my brother come onto the pod announce your new journalism <laughs> endowment and we will love facebook forever are you there mark zuckerberg <laughs> <laughs> right. it's me <laughs> <laughs> Joining me on the pod today is Tanzina Vega. Tanzina is a CNN national reporter for race and inequality, and she's joining the show to talk a little bit about her work at CNN and how newsrooms can diversify to represent their communities a little bit more than they have to this point. Tanzina, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So your title is Reporter for Race and Inequality, and I'm just kind of curious, first and foremost, has that beat, the parameters of that beat, what you cover on a day-in and day-out basis, has that changed at all much in the last, say, year or so, just given all of the political upheaval and all of sort of the undercurrents of discussion with regard to race and how Donald Trump is a polarizing figure? How does that factor into your coverage, and has it changed at all, you know, what you focus on day-in and day-out? I actually, for me, I think I'm one of the, the people whose beat hasn't changed that much because these are issues. The, the only difference is these issues have now, I think, come more and more into the forefront of our consciousness. You know, I sort of started writing about race in 2013 when, you know, when I was at the Times, and I call that sort of a pre-Ferguson moment where people of color were conscious about race, and we would have these conversations. But I think once 
the dial shifted over to a post-Ferguson world. We saw the rise of Black Lives Matter, and I kept working on this beat. And so I think for me, the issues have just gotten more and more um, attention. And also when we think about race, I, I often think people think just black and brown. Sure. Americans, and I think the conversation has obviously shifted to include narratives about white, particularly white working class Americans and what that means. And so, you know, I think as we're seeing these policies roll out from the administration, there are obvious narratives that are being created and different frameworks that are being created that I'm interested in exploring. But the core uh, of my beat at CNN and CNN Money is really looking at inequality. And if, you know, we know anything about the United States, that inequality it runs deep, and, and it's shown in data and dollars. So right. for me, it's just given me more to write about. Right. You certainly see, as you mentioned, sort of the white working class, they have emerged as one of those narratives, as you say. I mean, how does that factor into your coverage? I feel like there's a r- rolling debate on media Twitter insofar as how much we should you know, fixate on this as a particular narrative as it relates to Trump's base of support. Do you have any sort of take on that or you know, critique of that? Totally. That I, of I think um, it's actually something I'm exploring for a piece right now and sort of where this narrative came from why and what i'm interested in is exploring why we view poverty through a racialized lens and this isn't to say that there aren't in fact there are more white number wise there are more whites who are living in poverty than there are black and brown americans but black and brown americans when i say that i mean black and latino americans often have a higher likelihood of being poor and living below the poverty line we have less wealth overall than whites do and that's something you know i've talked about consistently throughout my coverage so I'm interested in exploring where this narrative is coming from, and I think it's, it's coming through the lens of how we look at poverty in America, who we consider to be victims of policy changes versus victims of their own lack of initiative, for example. And I think those are the narratives that we need to pay very close attention to as we begin to explore who are the working class in America. In fact, I wrote a piece not too long ago just with the headline, What About the Black Working Class? Because as someone myself who grew up in a working class community, a Latino uh, working class community here in in New York and African-American working class community, it was sort of a narrative that wasn't making, it it felt limited. It felt like we were only hearing half of the story. And part of the reason why is because of how we look at the story, right? And we tend to look at Um, communities of color and poverty in a very different way than we do uh, white communities that are living in poverty. Right, certainly. And I think it's obviously safe to say that a large part of that is just because of the fact that our our newsrooms in many cases aren't representative of the communities that we purport to cover. Uh, The, you know, some sort of industry bodies keep statistics on, quote unquote, newsroom diversity numbers. They're fairly incomplete, but they show basically a stagnant picture over the last years and decades. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if in some cases or some corners of the industry, they're actually regressing. So you have been pretty outspoken on this, just the idea of having, you know, newsrooms that are representative. You've written a few columns that have been very well shared uh, just with regard to how newsrooms should approach this differently. But I'm I'm kind of curious at sort of the base level question. Everybody says they care about this, but it never seems to get better. Why exactly do you think that is? Well, I think it's because we tend to look, one one of the reasons, I mean, there are many reasons, is because... Change is hard, particularly in, in major, you know, big, the bigger the organization is, I think the harder it is to affect that change. So change is hard and change can be slow. Change often means unseating um, and disrupting the current power base 
right? So that can be uncomfortable. That's how a lot of people look at diversity initiatives right. to begin with. Well, if I, you know, if we start opening up the pipeline, then certain people are going to lose jobs or right. what have you. And that, that's not really the case. Diversity is also often seen as a trend, right? And I think, you know, in the last piece that I wrote about this, the, the 10-point plan, that was one of the first things I wanted to point out was one of the first ways to increase diversity was to stop reacting to it. Hmm. You know, stop making it this thing where you go, oh my God, a report came out, we look really bad, let's go and, and find brown people or <laughs> right. um, LGBT people right. or poor people or whatever metric you're looking at, you know, to increase your diversity. I think it has to be part of the core mission and part of the core mission of any business and media is at the end of the day as a business is to make sure that your business is better than other businesses. And having different points of view just makes your business better, particularly in a newsroom. And I, there's a lot of talk about, you know, particularly along this white working class narrative about how people miss the white working class story. Sure. And I just think that beyond the race element here, I think we also have a major class element in a lot of newsrooms. And I think um, particularly the bigger the newsroom is and the more prestigious it is, I think we really need to look carefully at, at that as well. But it's not a trend. The demographics of the United States are shifting, and that's not just the trend. That's the reality of the country we live in, and we need to make sure we keep up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned the class element of this. And, you know, I was actually thinking about this before the show. And when I, w I went to Northwestern, so obviously my parents could afford to send me to school, then I could afford to take an unpaid internship my first year after college, which is key. I mean, you have to have a first internship. So these things really start at a very, very young age where people, young journalists are basically starting from from behind in a lot of cases. And I think it starts there. But I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. There isn't much support going through toward mid-career journalists or late-career journalists as well. Jeez, well, that, that's like two questions in there. <laughs> one is the financial question, sure. and the other one is the, the support for mid and, and late-career uh, late journalists. Uh, the financial element of this is critical. I have often said that I've had to make some of the biggest decisions of my life were based on finances. I am single. I come from a working-class community. Uh, working-class family that doesn't have a lot of wealth to pass on. Um, I don't own property. And so all of those things, believe it or not, you know, wealth is generational. And so all of those things impact whether or not you're able to take an unpaid internship, whether or not you're able to go to that school that might not offer you the same amount of aid. And, and granted, I had a scholarship program for my undergrad. And I still ended up going to a state school because that's where the, the money went the furthest. Right. Right. Instead of going, being able to go to a private school that probably would have come with more cachet and, you know, more types of connections, et cetera. Same thing for, for graduate school. You know, these are decisions that are made. Um, in particular, the graduate school I went to had paid internships. So if you had an internship that wasn't paid, they would pay a stipend for you. And that part of that mission was to really level the playing field for people who couldn't afford to take unpaid internships. That's a huge issue when it comes to journalism. Um, it really blocks who's able to get their foot in the door early because if you don't have the money or you don't have family that can support you, that becomes a challenge. Now, the flip side to it is, yes, I agree. I think with a lot of, as somebody who's asked to do a lot of moderating and a lot of panels and a lot of uh, mentoring, which I think is critical and it's super important, we need to really look at particularly our national organizations like the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, right. Black Journalists, et cetera, I think we really need to look at what we're doing for mid-career journalists and beyond. Often the mentorship is pointing down, right? And those of us who have gotten to a certain point in our careers and we're looking to 
bring the next generation up, which is critical. But we also need, you know, those of us who are at that stage, um, you know, journalism is a, is a very, can be a very taxing and, and difficult job to do. And we, too, need that support to sort of navigate the next level, which is where I think we're really lacking in, in diversity, is at that mid to upper tier. Right, right? managers. We need, I, I think we need to start seeing, uh, we're seeing some change at the entry level. We're seeing some change with, with some companies trying to create pipelines. But I think where we're really struggling is at the mid career management level and up, you know, who are your senior editors, your publishers, your editors-in-chief, um, people who are running your photo departments, and even in certain beats, you know, look at White House press corps, sure, I mean, that's yeah. what started that whole list space all in the right. time. Right. So, you, so you, earlier on, you mentioned, for example, coverage of the, the working class and, and how that, you know, the black working class, that storyline has been overlooked in some ways uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, I'm curious on a broad macro sense, national sense, you know, what's the sort of journalistic impact of having a less diversified newsroom, a newsroom just less representative of the country at large, which is a you know, very diverse country? I mean, what what are we missing? What sorts of storylines are, are sort of falling by the wayside? I think we're missing storylines, I mean, not to toot my own horn, but I think we're missing storylines just like that. And I think as you see, just like, you know, what about the black working class? That Rarely do I write pieces that even have a question as a headline, and to me it was just such an obvious one, right, because right. the narrative, again, had changed. But when you see, it's not just the people who are writing, it's our producers, it's people who are behind the scenes, it's editors, it's people approving stories. You know, writing about um, the issues that I write about requires editors and photographers and videographers who also have a certain understanding of the topic and has a certain understanding of the you know people who they're interviewing and has and you have a certain understanding of people who what types of questions you should ask and right. you know that I think you saw this we did this um, five-part year-long video series at CNN called Unstereotype and you know, we really examined things that hadn't really been examined, I don't think, as much as in a video sort of print piece. And we looked at black Republicans, and we looked at the black 1%, and we looked at LGBT clergy, for example. Right. And, you know, it takes people who are open and also sensitive and also able to, you know, push the narrative forward and get beyond the stereotypes and get beyond the things that, you know, we're so locked into in our media frames. But it, it takes a lot of work to change that. Right. Yeah, one of the things I'm worried about with, with this as well is we've talked so much about sort of loss of trust in media, but rarely do we talk about that through the context of these communities that you're talking about. Say a poor urban community you know, in New York City, say the South Bronx, for the vast majority of time that they get any attention from news organizations, always when something bad happens, right? It's a, it's a crime, it's a drug deal or, or what have you. Rarely do sort of the day-to-day lives of these people get covered in a very fair, honest way in the news. So, I mean, I guess that's what I'm in the context of this huge argument regarding trust, I, I'm worried about that side of it as well. I just feel like there's so much hand-wringing over this, but when in reality we, we have very concrete steps we could be taking to reach out to some of these communities. Right, and we shouldn't just be reaching out. I mean, people aren't, the audiences aren't dumb. They know when you're parachuting in and parachuting out, right? That's why I think also it's so important to, I, I recently came from a Neiman workshop uh, for covering housing, and what I thought was so great about that workshop was that the folks at Neiman handpicked journalists from all over the country who came from a number of different media, so radio, print, digital, TV, etc., and big and small outlets. So you had folks there who were doing super regional journalism who really understood 
the policies, the in and out, you know, of what's happening in their city council. And that type of reporting is critical to covering communities. We right. also forget, there were also members in this group of the ethnic press, and we forget how important, quote-unquote, the ethnic press is, right? We have you know, with some folks who are covering communities that only, like Chinese-American communities or Chinese-immigrant communities, Haitian communities. Uh, the larger, the larger Spanish language news, newspaper in New York City, for example, and these are critical sources of information, particularly for neighborhood reporting. So I think sometimes we think, well, if it doesn't make it to the Times or to CNN, it hasn't been reported. And right. I agree. I think we need to do a better job of reporting on communities that are undercovered, as we saw, you know, with the white working class and other. But communities of color and poor communities are. It's not just the first time that a community has been forgotten. Oftentimes. That's what happens. You, you're losing a lot of beat reporting and you're losing a lot of community reporting. And I think that that's really, really critical. I mean, there isn't a lot of trust in media. And I think uh, communities of color have historically, to a certain extent, had some of those concerns because they didn't feel like they were being covered accurately. And you see it in, in, you know, on, uh, in media studies quite a bit when we do focus on communities of color or black and brown Americans that's often framed through, I mean, look at the Brock Turner sure. um, fiasco that happened a couple of months ago. The photos that were being used, just from that perspective, the photos that were being used of Brock Turner, this is somebody who was accused of raping a drunk woman who had been unconscious, and yet the media narrative with this person is he was a, I don't know, some sort of a, a high-level swimmer. swimmer yeah. he, they used his graduation photo, I think, with some sort of official school photo. So not the mugshot, right? Right. So we need to think about how we're presenting these narratives in our newsrooms. And, and that's where, again, the case for diversity comes in. Right, certainly. Yeah, we've started having a lot of discussions at CJR about how to approach this institutionally, how to sort of expand our hiring processes and reach out in, in more and different ways to different people. But I'm curious from a reporter level, I'm a white dude. I'm, I don't really have hiring power. How can I make my journalism better in, in this sort of lens? What, what are some, some of your you know, basic tips to help people do that? I think we need to, I mean, I, I know it sounds simple, but I think we need to look at people with the same humanity as we would anyone else. I mean, I think that's really the, the challenge. Oftentimes people come into newsrooms and they feel like they've been hired as the diversity candidate, right? No one wants to feel like that. People want to come in and do their jobs just the same way that everybody else does their job, you know? And I think one of the things I tell people often is, if you don't understand something, ask questions. If you really don't understand something, listen to what people are saying. Listen to what other communities are talking about. Explore. Do the research. You know, you have tons of research at your fingertips. If you really want to learn about these issues, then, it's, then there are people out there who study them, who live them every day. And it, it, it's really our job as journalists to do that. And I think that that's really a critical part of this conversation is that we have to be take a certain amount of responsibility, especially as journalists, for learning what we need to learn about other communities and having that sensitivity and making sure we're going beyond the traditional narrative. You know, have you really talked to as many people as you can about X, you know, if right. you're reporting on X? And try to look outside the usual frames for the stories that you're covering. You know, oftentimes when we're looking at um, different storylines, we're thinking about 
the people that we know, right? And that's the same goes for hiring. It's all about the people that we sure. know. Yeah. Well, branch out beyond the people that you know, and, and believe me, there's a whole world there. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, then, then finally, I just wanted to ask one more thing, is that Twitter informs me that you have a book coming out. I do. Tell me about it. Um, I was just saying now I've actually got to write it. <laughs> <The book is laughs> right, called, first things first. Um, it's called Uppity. It's, it's um, Uppity, Women, Race, and Class in America. It'll be published by Nation Books in 2018. And really what this is looking at is something I've been thinking about as a woman of color my entire life. I've really been trying to put into words what I've been living and, and experiencing. Um, I, when we look at the majority of women in the United States, women of color will be the majority of women in the next couple of decades. And that's what I mean by that are black, Latina, Asian American women and Native American women. And so as, as we head into this majority status, we look at things like the likelihood of being married, the likelihood of getting paid less, the likelihood of having a C-suite job. Um, all of these things impact your, your life. All of these things connected sort of impact everything that we do. And I, the question I was asking, and I, want, and I met, really want to answer in this book, is, is having it all a concept created by white women for white women, right? Because when we look at some of the advice that's been doled out, when we look at, like, Anne-Marie Slaughter or Cheryl Sandberg, who I think did, you know, excellent work, good advice is still incomplete advice, right? And there, there are narratives here, and there are unique issues that women of color deal with when it comes to all of these other issues, whether it's our health care, our education, our jobs, um, our relationships, that white women aren't dealing with necessarily. And so I want to unpack that. And every, you know, all the women, a lot of the women I talk to say they've got tons of stories. So hopefully this is going to be a combination of my personal story, but it'll also be looking at data, looking at studies, collecting stories from women of color around the country. And, and again, it's not meant to say that we're a monolith because we aren't. But there are threads when you look at the data, like I said, when you look at marriage rates, when you look at different, you know, issues surrounding health, culturally competent health care, and when you look at pay and, and, and who's in the C-suite and who's at the top, it's not us very often. And so I want to answer, ask the question why, and, and hopefully give some hope for, for those coming behind me. Right. We will be eagerly awaiting that. Tanzina Vega, Thank you. thanks so much for your time. We enjoyed having you in the pod. Thank you. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank my co-host Pete Vernon and Nosca Renner, both of CJR, and also my special guest from CNN, Tanzina Vega. Go to CJR.org, become a member of the Columbia Journalism Review, and please, please, please share, review, comment on this podcast on iTunes or Overcast or wherever you get your show. We'd greatly appreciate your time and help. And also follow us on Twitter, at KickerCJR. Heckle Pete or I, we will respond to any and all insults. And also you can email us suggestions for future discussion ideas or guests at thekicker at cjr.org. Thanks again for kicking it with us. We will see you next week.